You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's podcast, we interview Maxim Shumakov, a Ukrainian socialist from an organization called the Social Movement of Ukraine. We'll be talking with Maxim about uh, the war in Ukraine and how the international left can support the efforts of the Ukrainian people to resist Putin's invasion. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a few minutes, we'll be talking with Maxim Shumakov about the war in Ukraine. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. Today is November 2nd. And for this current event section, we're going to be talking about a piece that came out uh, a couple of days ago in the New York Times on October 30th. It's an opinion piece by a woman named Elizabeth Bick, B-I-K. And the piece is entitled, Science Has a Nasty Photoshopping Problem. And we thought this might be a good springboard for talking about um, integrity, uh, truthfulness in science and, and academic writing in general. It's a topic that we've touched on at different times in this podcast, but maybe this will give us a, a different uh, springboard for the conversation. It's a fascinating article. Um, Elizabeth Bick apparently is someone who has sort of made it a uh, mission of hers to find examples of falsification of evidence in scientific papers submitted to scientific journals. Um, she was a... Well, it says at the top of this article, she's a microbiologist who's worked at Stanford University. There you go. And for the Dutch National Institute for Health. Right. Uh, she now devotes full time to this kind of whistleblowing activity. Right. Apparently, she has some kind of genius for spotting visual patterns and things. And the article is entertaining in that it takes you visually through a bunch of examples of slides in papers and scientific journals and show places where images have been just duplicated in Photoshop or some other image editing program in order to manipulate results to fit the needs of the researchers. Duplication, you know, but she says like duplication, you know, might be in a, just an error. You, you pull an image from a folder and you meant to do a different one. But the, the, the real evidence is some of the things have been stretched and flipped and, you know, rotated. So it's been made to look different. Same image from previous paper or, or whatever, but used again <laughs> as if it was a real piece of evidence. Yeah. She says at one point, um, using my pattern matching eyes and lots of caffeine, I've analyzed more than 100,000 papers since 2014 and found apparent image duplication in 4,800 and similar evidence of error, cheating, or other ethical problems in an additional uh, 1,700. I've reported 2,500 of these to journals' editors and learning the hard way that journals often do not respond to these cases, posted many of these papers along with 3,500 more to pub here, uh, et cetera. I was surprised how widespread the problem was, at least according to her uh, experience. Um, but she talks not just about this as a problem, but she talks about some of the some of the institutional realities that may contribute to this kind of problem. The fact that 
people need to publish in order to keep their jobs. They often have to publish a certain amount of papers a year. They need to have evidence of having published things in order to uh, get funding for research projects. Or even to get their degree. One thing I learned doing a little research on this as to why there was such a problem coming from China is that people getting a medical degree in China need to publish a paper. And the programs don't give them any time to do the research to publish a paper. So they've got these paper mills and they, they, they buy papers with this manufactured evidence. Wow. Well, she also talks about how with the rise of artificial intelligence generated images that this uh, problem is going to become uh, even more widespread potentially and even be harder to spot because instead of just photoshopping and existing images, flipping them, reversing them, stretching them, people will just be able to feed into a computer what they want and get images back to meet whatever needs they have. And so she concludes the paper by suggesting that the, the natural sciences uh, need a really different methods of verification in the sciences beyond the the normal channels of peer review. And we don't necessarily, necessarily need to go into all the details there, but the, the problem is not going to just solve itself by having some whistleblowers point out the problem. It's There need to be in some institutional changes, she recommends. The, the theme of like problems with um, like institutional and economic problems of research and the, the journal industry have come up before on the podcast. You have some experience on these things yourself. Yeah, not from anything like what she's doing with photographic or image evidence and not with outright falsification of evidence as far as I know, but I've countered and exposed a number of studies where you just cannot replicate the results. There was a big, big replication crisis, and this I think she mentioned in the article, a number of years ago centered in psychology. A lot of papers were published and they claimed certain results and other people tried to do similar experiments, let's say, and they couldn't come up with results at all like that. I haven't been dealing with experimental results, but for instance, there was a paper that I was asked to write a reply to by uh, Yonatan Nitsan and Shimshon Bichler, and they claimed that there was only X periods where there was this kind of correlation between this and that, and that showed that there was systemic fear permeating the financial markets and all of this. And I, I, I just tried to replicate this, the same series. And I said, whoa, well, there was another period. And this was like the golden age of capitalism. This was like, you know, the, the, the 50s to the mid 60s. Capitalism was doing really re well in the post-war boom. And you had a similar pattern to what they said was a, a, a period of systemic fear and crisis. And this was the opposite. You know, there was that really egregious mishandling, as you know, of wage data and uh, other similar data by the people at Monthly Review. There's that. And then I wrote a number of papers about a case of, it's obviously a spurious correlation, which is a term used when you've got two series and they move together, they vary together. So if, if one variable goes up, the other one goes up, the other one, one goes down, the other goes down, something like that, that's correlation. And you can get things that are correlated, but there's no causal relationship between them. That's very common, you know. So you have where you've got uh, fires and you've got more firefighters at the scene, you've got more water damage. 
but firefighters being at the scene doesn't cause the fire damage. The fire de damage doesn't cause the, the firefighters to come to the scene, right? The, the size of the fire is the lurking variable or the missing variable, where you've got bigger fires, more firefighters come to the scene, bigger fires, more, more damage. So when you've got a, an explanatory variable that's hidden, suppressed, lurking, when you don't call attention to it, something else could stand in its place and look like it's a cause. And people, starting with Anwar Sheikh and Ed Ochoa and Paul Cockshutz, made a career of this and so forth, who claimed that, you know, prices and values at the industry level, the, the output of industries, the price of output and the, the value of output are correlated. And this proves what they call the labor theory of value and so forth. But all it really shows is where you've got big industries, they have a lot of output. So with a big output, the price of the output's high, the value of the output's high. Little industries, they don't produce much output. So the total value of the output's low, the price, total price of the output's low. So it's, it's a very similar case to the one with the big and the small uh, fires. So, I mean, there, there's that, that kind of mishandling of, of evidence as well. So, you know, it's, it's just rife all throughout uh, economics and, and, you know, kind of related stuff. I think it's particularly poor when you talk about uh, heterodox economics or things that are outside of the mainstream. For instance, Monthly Review is not a peer-reviewed uh, publication. But it's, it's bad all over for, for, for a number of, of reasons. And I, I think that the main problem, and this is affecting what, what, what Elizabeth Bick is, is dealing with, as well is the people who run journals are running it for their benefit, their colleagues, their little clique, uh, and those people's students. And so they protect themselves, you know, and they publish their own stuff and their opponents they don't publish. Of course, what Elizabeth Bick is also responding to and getting involved with is now that it's, it's become very, very easy to start and operate a journal. And there's tremendous amount of proliferation of journals, and a lot of these journals are built on a very different model. The journals used to be very expensive. You know, typically only a few people relatively would subscribe to them. Libraries would subscribe. You get a lot of money from libraries, but uh, it would pay to read the journal. Now, you get, a lot of these journals are free of charge. They're just online, and the authors pay. So that's your clientele, and you're a journal. You have to service your, your clientele. You know, you, you're not going to exercise very rigorous standards. Toward the end of the article, as I mentioned, Elizabeth Bick suggests that with the rise of artificial intelligence generated imagery that her type of fact checking and whistleblowing might not really be enough to uh, expose this sort of fraudulent research in the future. And she suggests various types of other ways of going about fact checking, verifying research, etc. Do you have any thoughts about any of those uh, suggestions, especially as they might also cross over into uh, economics or other social sciences? One of her recommendations at the end of the article, she says, as it becomes harder to distinguish between fake and real data, science might need to move toward a model based on reproduction, where PhD students earn credit for replicating published studies, while the researchers whose work is reproduced get credit as well. Okay, so this has to do with replication of studies. Are the results that are claimed able to be reproduced in a different experiment or a slightly different specification of a model using already published data? 
or even taking the, the regular d data. I, I, I tried to actually replicate somebody's uh, procedures, paper having to do with financialization, and I could not do it. And we wrote to him, and he said he'd get back to us, and he didn't get back to us. And so we reported this, uh, the outcome of all of this, uh, myself and Shannon Williams in a paper published, uh, I think, in 2015 in uh, the Cambridge Journal of Economics, which is one of the more respected uh, heterodox economics journals, and this is a big issue because it has to do with was financialization the cause of the Great Recession, or did it have to do with the problems within capitalist uh, production? This was like one of the big pieces of evidence of the financialization school. We just could not replicate it. In any case, as I mentioned, to get a degree, people who get a PhD have to produce original research. And people who publish papers have to pr uh, publish original research, by and large. And there's a strong bias in the journals towards publishing discoveries. Okay, so where you find something new, where you say, aha, there is an effect that had not been discovered. Well, why is that more important than, ah, we tested whether there is such an effect, and we found that there is not an effect. But for some reason, people don't like so-called negative results where you don't find an effect. So this is bias to find effects. And you have to put this together, you put it together with, oh, you have to produce original research. So there's a strong bias to find, to discover some new relationship that has not been discovered before. That biases the, the whole project. You can see very easily how that leads to the falsification of images and, and all kinds of other similar problems. What, what she's recommending is, look, science is a collective enterprise. Knowledge is a collective human pursuit. And part of it is knowing that we can trust what has been so-called discovered. So replication or attempts of, to replicate that fail, those are hugely important, okay? So why shouldn't PhD students get credit for replicating or trying to replicate published studies? Why, why is the, the bar, you have to find some new relationship that people didn't think exists and you show that it exists? Why not a really good effort to try to do what other people ha have done in maybe with a new sample of people or a new way of specifying or whatever it might be? There just is not enough credit given for the reproduction of relationships that have already been claimed or the failed attempt to reproduce such relationships. I, I think that that's a, that's a very important thing she, she's talking about and the, the whole replication crisis that broke out in psychology and sociology and stuff, uh, that's pointed to the same thing as well. The, the way in which we think about this is, is, is very, very skewed. Well, that's all the time we have for this segment. Up next, our interview with uh, Ukrainian socialist Maxim Shumakov. On today's podcast, we are pleased to welcome to the podcast Maxim Shumakov, a Ukrainian socialist who's going to be talking to us about the war in Ukraine, the international left's response to the war, and various other issues. In particular, we're going to be discussing a statement put out about the war uh, by a group called the Social Movement of Ukraine, or Solzhenyi Ru, and we'll uh, link to that resolution on the podcast description. 
Our guest, Maxim Shumakov, is on the executive committee of uh, the social movement of Ukraine, and he is also uh, does a lot of other things uh, in the left in Ukraine. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about those things now, Maxim. Yeah, also I'm an organizer of the student uh, trade unions in Ukraine and uh, one of the founders of International Network of Solidarity with uh, young people in Ukraine called uh, Use for Ukrainian resistance. Is that just a Ukrainian organization? No, actually, it's an international campaign or international network of different uh, student and youth trade unions organization with a socialist or anarchist uh, perspective. And our aim is uh, to compose the demands to international left leftist movement uh, for the help of Ukrainian resistance and the youth that participates in it. So it's right. international, basically. Well, Maxim, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, let's just jump right into some of the, the questions that we wanted to ask. Recently, I wrote to a colleague in Germany uh, that we need to support the Ukrainian people's fight for national self-determination. And last week, he responded, what exactly does support mean in this case? It could mean a wide variety of very different things. So he then listed 17 different kinds of support. Uh, but rather than my trying to answer it, I think this is really a question for you, for Ukrainians to answer. You know what you need. So how should progressive and pro-democracy people in the U.S., people who are anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist, uh, in the U.S., in Western Europe, and elsewhere, how should we support Ukraine? Yeah, thank you. And uh, actually, this is a complicated question because it combines several aspects. Uh, the one I'd say I'd call uh, theoretical or that operates on the level of discourse, and the other is practical, so I will... Uh, talk a big bit about both of them. And uh, firstly, uh, we've seen that uh, since the beginning of the Russian invasion, we've seen that the rupture in the leftist discourse, so to say, or the socialist discourse and socialist policies, because uh, there appear different camps which have a totally different agenda, part of which supported the Ukraine, part of which stood for this uh, no war or pacifist position, and the other one uh, blatantly supported Russia. But to my mind and to from the scope of our organization, this uh, indicates for us that uh, the people from the West or from the other countries are totally unacquainted with the context of post-Soviet policy, politics, uh, and uh, the things that are going on here, actually. So I'd say that on the, the theoretical level, uh, what we should suggest for the people who want to support us is first of all to listen to the people to the different movements that appear or have an activities here in ukraine and one of these organizations uh, is mine uh, the social network or social movement and uh, actually from our perspective we pr su suggest our analysis of the situation and our reasons for the support of the ukrainian resistance and the, actually the ukrainian people it's very important for, to my mind to, to actually highlight that here in Ukraine, everybody is speaking that uh, here only the far-right movement, the fascists uh, are having other different activities, but actually there are different uh, uh, socialist movements, socialist organizations, much of them of course uh, are an anti-authoritarian, like anarchist, but uh, some of them also are uh, socialist or Marxist or 
any other. So it, to, to my mind, it's very important to highlight the subjectivity of Ukrainian people, the trade union movement, the socialist movement. And uh, we have actually an example of this from France, uh, where one of the uh, publishers, like the grassroots publishers, uh, Silaps, these their editorial started to publish different topics and different materials about the Ukrainian socialist artists, uh, for example, uh, and designer and artists of our organization, uh, different art activities and so on, to to show that there are actually the democratic democratic left that wants uh, the democratic transformation of the country. And uh, what's about the practical aspect? Um, I can suggest that uh, in my organization, we have different campaigns, actually, and uh, because we cannot demand from our government uh, directly to call them for the execution of our policies, because uh, since the invasion, any demonstrations are banned due to the security reasons. Uh, so we usually rely rely on the international community for them, for you to highlight our uh, campaigns. And one of them is a debt cancellation campaign, uh, because uh, as many of you know, Ukraine as a country is in a big uh, economic recession. And because of the international uh, financial organization like IMF, we have a huge debt that we are incapable to, to cover. Therefore, we think that since the beginning of the war, all the conditions are so that uh, Ukrainian debt is very unjust and must be cancelled. So you can uh, participate uh, in this campaign, of course, to join it. So another one is uh, used for Ukrainian resistance because uh, at the begin since the beginning of the war, a lot of Ukrainian students uh, who were on the occupied regions fled from, from there and they are now in a very poor situations where they require a lot of support, assistance, uh, financial and uh, psychological. Uh, so we also are trying to make some fundraising campaigns internationally in this Youth for Ukrainian Resistance Network to, to help uh, people on the, on the grounds. What is life like in Ukraine now? The Western media has been talking a lot about all the incredible advances that Ukraine has made retaking territory over the past month, but then also a pretty brutal uh, response by Russia with, with more indiscriminate bombings of civilian targets. And the Russian military began a new campaign of drone and missile attacks. So what is going on now in Ukraine for you and, and people around you? Firstly, the situation here is very uneven in different regions because we have uh, one situation in the west, western part, like where I'm living. Uh, totally another things are go taking place in Kiev and in the central area, and uh, and uh, everything is different again on the occupied regions. Uh, but we have some connections with the people who are living under occupation, so we basically have some um, information about uh, what is going on. There. The western part of Ukraine now is uh, the most quiet region because we had almost no bombings here. Yes, there were several shellings uh, during the past six months or so. Yeah, but actually it's very quiet and uh, safe to be here. But uh, <clears throat> because a lot of people moved here, fleet from the from the areas uh, in which it is dangerous to live. The, the prices uh, skyrocketed here, uh, especially for the housing, and it's very difficult situation for the people who are who are refugees for example uh, from Mariupol or Donetsk region or any or from Kherson 
On the basis of state policy, it was very complicated to, to make some humanitarian assistance for those people. So basically, only local governments like the city councils uh, are trying now to, to make some diff to, to change the situation. And usually, they build some social housing, which is designed very poorly. It's like the boxes where people live with very bad, um, how to put it, warming. The heating systems are poor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so as uh, the winter comes, the new problems, new issues uh, arrive how to people to live because these boxes are totally not suitable for living there in winter, especially when we have, by the recent events, uh, such a great problems with electricity and with uh, all uh, infrastructure in Ukraine. Of course, the Ukrainian army made some made a big progress uh, in the deoccupied regions, but uh, still a lot of uh, a lot of the Ukrainian territory is under occupation. And we actually have a lot of information uh, from uh, Mariupol because some of the members of our from from my group from my movement is uh, were living in Mariupol. Situation is very weird. Now it's quiet and uh, almost safe to live in the city, despite the fact that almost every building in the city is burned down. And Russian authorities or the DPR, they claim that they will provide some assistance for the people who live there, like uh, they will fix their apartment uh, and so on. But uh, in fact, nothing of this is happening. But there are a lot of different uh, problems. For example, because of the fights, street fights that were that had taken place in Mariupol, there were a lot of uh, dead corpses on the street. And uh, as the city is, is located uh, on the seaside, uh, all the, uh, the corpses actually create uh, some hazardous environment for the people to live there. And a lot of different diseases appeared in the cities uh, and because of the Russian government cannot uh, afford to, to cure all the people because infrastructure for the medicines and for the hospital is ruined. So yeah, people are trying to create some chaotic forms of organization to help themselves, but the situation is very complicated there. And of course, they have a very poor uh, connection with the people who are in uh, Ukraine. They cannot uh, leave across the border to Ukraine. So the only choice they have is to go to Russia. And uh, we have several cases of the people who moved to Russia. And usually when they go there, uh, they at the same moment, uh, they are suggested to have some low payment job as a refugee from Ukraine with uh, some basic assistance, like some poor quality apartment or so. Yeah, so th there are a lot of challenges now in Ukraine for the government, from the, for the different NGOs and including the, the left movements, but uh, we are trying to know what are the problems here and try to suggest different ways to solve them. Right, so Maxim, you are on the council, the highest body of Social uh, social movement is an English translation of the organization, and last month, uh, September, it put out a resolution and we're going to provide a link to the English version of the resolution. And one thing the resolution says is, with the outbreak of the war, the oligarchs and other major capitalists have fled the state, Ukraine. Uh, it was the common people, including organized workers, representing the largest part of the civil society, who stood up to defend the country. I found that interesting. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, again, thank you for this question. In Ukraine, we have different uh, journalist investigations. And some time ago, we've seen that a lot of Ukrainian oligarchs actually 
are not taking part uh, in the in the resistance, are not paying for some uh, um, equipment for the army. But uh, before the invasions, they fled the country, and we uh, have uh, the videos and materials where they when they chilling in some Monaco or elsewhere and have no business to what's going on here in Ukraine. And actually, this shows us uh, that uh, the resistance that is going on here in Ukraine is actually composed of the regular people. We have two main bodies uh, that are fighting, is uh, like the regular army of Ukraine and the territorial defense, like the local militia on the grounds. During the first days uh, of, of the invasion, Almost all the positions, all the, the free, so to say, free slots uh, in this territorial defense was uh, full of people because just the regular Ukrainians who go to job every day felt that they, they should go and protect their land. So there were even funny stories when the people were trying to join the territorial defense, but there were no uh, equipment and uh, no need for them to to participate in it. We have a lot of contacts with Ukrainian trade, trade unions. Uh, some of them are very bureaucratic and uh, like the, the National Confederation of Labor of Ukraine. But a lot of them are very combative. Uh, in my city, we have uh, links with crane operators trade union, which is very effective in its workspaces. So uh, almost all of the Ukrainian army, uh, territorial defense and the regular army are composed of those people. Of course, there are a lot of challenges. For example, a lot of them are going on the front line, but have no ammunition and Ukrainian state cannot afford uh, to provide them with the helmets or the uh, bulletproof vests. So uh, the role of trade unions and these uh, grassroots movements uh, are very significant. Because usually for for those who are fighting uh, on the front front line, the clothing and the equipment for them is bought by the trade unions and the activists. That is exactly what we uh, were trying to pursue in our resolution. That this uh, resistance is actually a popular one, not the not manufactured by oligarchs or somewhere else to pursue their interests. So. Your September resolution also says that the war led to the creation of new forms of social organization in Ukraine, as you referred to it, and that they need to continue and be expanded after the war has ended. And the resolution then says that, uh, quote, a new Ukrainian identity, which is multi-ethnic and multicultural, is being born before our eyes, end quote. So what are, what are these new forms of social organization that you're referring to? Um, and can you explain what you mean by uh, say, when you say a new Ukrainian identity is emerging and how it differs from the previous one? Yeah, I, I will start with the second question about Ukrainian new identity. Yeah, we've seen that uh, since the first invasion of Russia to Ukraine uh, in uh, 2014, because of the, all the challenges uh, that appeared at that time, in Ukraine there appeared uh, some kind of a ethnic nationalist discourse and because of a lot of fear of from the Russia and so on actually the Ukrainian government were also using that type of discourse for the manipulations and for their aims but the situation drastically changed after the beginning of this year when the Russia came to Ukraine invaded because uh, when the Russian speaking Ukrainians in the Kherson are going with the Ukrainian flag and trying to wipe out of their city the Russian tanks, 
you do not connect Ukrainian identity to uh, some to, to language or to yeah, I don't know color skin or whatever. We've seen that uh, since the beginning of the invasion in Ukraine, uh, there appeared a new Ukrainian identity, which is not based on any ethnic or linguistic or any other types of uh, identities. Uh, and that, uh, I, I'd say, to call it civic uh, nationalism, is based only on, on the belonging to, to Ukraine, like to, to be a, a citizen of Ukraine. But uh, there were a lot of inspiration since the beginning because we've seen that we have uh, good results in uh, combating uh, that uh, Russia failed to invade as they trying to invade in three days to Kiev to occupy the city. And there were a lot of people were very inspired at the time. Like the regular Ukrainians were thought that the war will end in two, three months, but it's uh, lasted, lasted, and we still are fighting. Because of that, all these inspirations is fading, and people are now again are trying to find who, who to whom to blame for this for this everything, and uh, that is the reason why we are have our position that we are trying to pursue everybody that the the way for Ukraine not to be nationalist country is to first of all defeat Russia and to create a democratic state. So that's about uh, the. Uh, new Ukrainian identity. And uh, sorry, could you repeat the, the first part? Uh, you, your resolution talks about new forms of social um, organization and that they need to be continued and expanded after the war. Yes. Um, the first days uh, of the war, there was a big flow of refugees to the West and uh, my city Lviv as uh, one of the most Western big cities in Ukraine, uh, so a lot of people were fleeing to my city. And I was volunteering as a train, sta the, the train station, the biggest train station here. And uh, I've seen that this big uh, hierarchical uh, bureaucratic uh, institutions of the government were totally inefficient in this situation because a lot of uh, quick decisions were to be made. And all these issues were actually resolved by the grassroots organizations that appeared these days. So a lot of these issues actually were resolved by them. And uh, after these first days, uh, these chaotic types of organizations were organizing themselves into a into groups and creating more political groups or NGOs, uh, for example, for housing problems or for refugees problems, trade unions, etc. And we see that this war, of course, it has enormous number of uh, bad results. But on the other hand, it uh, all the processes that were happening in Ukraine were boosted much. And really a lot of organizations uh, appeared. For example, we have like the friend organization of mine is Bilkis, it's an anarchist feminist group that are helping for the women with children uh, in Ukraine, both in the Western countries. Uh, so we see in, though, in these chaotic forms of organization a new possibility for us to link them all and to, to have a communication, the dialogue, and to create a new vision for the transformation of our country. Maxim, you've spoken about the de defeating Russia, defeating Putin's army, which is occupying your country. Sotiany Ruch's September resolution calls for complete victory and security for Ukraine. And I note that you're not calling for peace. Can you explain why you're not calling for peace and what do you mean by complete victory uh, and security? Obviously, those are 
important uh, details exactly what you mean mm -hmm. for some parts this uh, is a rhetorical uh gesture when we say that uh, we are not for peace but for the defeat of Russian imperialism because uh, basically we are we are all for peace of course but usually this type of rhetorics is used by uh, some um, I'd say uh, Stalinist groups to say that uh, no uh, at, this mo at this moment we should stop the war and have some dialogue uh, maybe some make some concessions to Russia for the war to be ended as soon as possible but uh, we do not see this uh, way as a solution for now in Ukraine because uh, we've seen the results of Russian occupation and all these pictures of Bucha, Irpin with uh, masks, graveyards, flew over all whole world. So uh, we are totally sure that the only way to pursue some progressive emancipatory politics is the defeat of imperialism. And so no concession should be made uh, in this war. And our vision is that the Russia should be defeated and the uh, constitutional borders of Ukraine should be restored, like the Ukraine with uh, full Donetsk, uh, Luhansk Oblast and the uh, Crimean Peninsula. Because if we use these rhetorics of concessions of a uh, so-called uh, multipolar world, uh, however, that is not totally the, the, the meaning of this world, I mean, the, the words that Putin uses, we will not create the world of when the emancipatory politics will be possible. We will create the world with different uh, imperial centers and when some revolt or some progressive demonstrations will take place, uh, they will not have the chance to transform some state politics or the general situation in the world. They will be uh, at the same moment crushed by the uh, imperialist center. And that we've seen uh, in Belarus when the Russia helped uh, uh, Lukashenko's regime to suppress the revolt uh, several years ago. And totally the same we've seen in Kazakhstan where we had the protesters who were the regular workers. Uh, as you know, the protesters' protests started from the trade, local trade unions on the factories. And the result of it was uh, the um, invasion of uh, of the KB army to suppress the revolt. So uh, no concession should be made to imperialism, and uh, from our perspective, the Russia should be defeated by the progressive coalition. We couldn't agree with you more. I mean, people who want the war to stop now, Putin can stop the war anytime he wants. Why isn't the pressure on Putin? to stop the war uh, and with regard to multipolarity you know our organization when when the war started we said basically what you said this is not a road to to internationalism so-called multipolarity it's very clear from what Putin is saying he wants to divide the world between multiple imperialist powers and and this is not a road for the freedom for colonialized and and, and oppressed people at all. So I, I, I'm completely w with with what you're saying there. So I, I hope I hope you can get this message out. Yeah, exactly. I, I totally agree with you. And but but there is also uh, another very dangerous path is to say that no, we should not fight with Russians. We should unite with them both because they are just the regular, the same regular people as we are, and fight against our both bourgeois regime. 
But, you know, first of all, of course, we support the idea of internationalism and we have uh, links with uh, Russian uh, democratic socialist organizations like RSD. But uh, first of all, for us to to be in solidarity with whom there should appear some major movement. And uh, we thought that this movement can appear when the Putin announced the general mobile partial, as he called it, mobilization in Russia. But because the, the society is very atomized, and as Anna Arendt said, the atomization is one of the reasons of fascization, because of the uh, atomization of Russian society, they could not create any significant large protest. Almost all of the people were trying to flee the country as soon as possible. Therefore, of course, we support uh, uh, the idea of internationalism, but there should appear some movement for whom we should uh, be in solidarity with whom. And uh, of course, when you say that we should not fight uh, against the Russians, but with our government, so I always uh, answer that maybe, first of all, we should uh, fight with uh, Russian government and Russians should fight with their government. But, but and later on, after the war, we will mm-hmm. try to, to speak with ours. Uh, well, this, this dovetails nicely into this critique of the left that uh, occurs in your September resolution, which contains some rather forceful statements um, about some of the perspective that the international left has had on this conflict. Um, You write, quote, the left in Europe and around the world turned out to be helpless and disoriented when the Russian aggression in Ukraine occurred. Unless the international socialist movement realizes mistakes it has made and builds a new truly internationalist cooperation and coordination, we simply have no chance of preventing the growth of um, inter-imperialist struggles in the future, uh, close quote. This definitely echoes a lot of things that we've said over the past year about this conflict. We've very many times discussed problematic positions on the left uh, that want to throw Ukrainians under the bus uh, and coming from, you mentioned the sort of Stalinist uh, elements we hear a lot from like the Noam Chomsky types here in America and the peace movement. Um, but what, what currents on the left did you have in mind when you were uh, writing this this bit? It's hard to use uh, to partially obsolete uh, formulations like Stalinist, Trotsky, etc., because usually they correspond to the historical period when where they appeared. And much of the context changed. So now um, it seems reasonable uh, to make some other divisions of the left because we see uh, people often say that uh, Stalinists do not support uh, the fight with uh, Russian imperialism, but Trotsky support and Trotsky support Ukraine. But now there are Trotskyists who have almost the same position as Stalinists and uh, the other ones. So I think that a lot of uh, the terminology is obsolete at the moment, and we should analyze the the context and the historical moments that we are living in. And maybe, just like the hypothesis, one of these uh, points to which we may refer is actually the war in Ukraine. So we can make some uh, divisions 
some classification of the leftist movements based on their position to the uh, events that are happening here. But the same for Palestine, uh, the same for Iranian protests. The history moves on and we should adapt to this movement of history. But basically, um, in the summer, we've conducted in Ukraine a meeting where we've invited some leftist currents, some leftist organizations, and a lot of the representatives of them came to Ukraine and supported us. We had a conference, today's today's conference, uh, and we've also at that time signed common resolution. And uh, the organizations that were participating were, for example, Polish party Razem, I'd say it's social democratic organization. There were also representatives of the Finnish Left Alliance, the representatives of different trade unions from Switzerland, from France. And uh, with some of them, we also organized the humanitarian convoy to Ukraine. Already we had two of them and we are now working to prepare the third one. And uh, actually, I think that this is the, an example of the internationalist uh, socialist uh, politics when the people from all over the world, uh, we had uh, even the representatives from Brazil who came to Lviv trying to help to assist uh, the popular resistance with the humanitarian and some military equipment. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. 
Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Your organization in the resolution issues a critique of the left, but you don't really mean all of the left. Uh, you mean the anti-Ukraine left or the people who are not uh, in, in favor of uh, defending your national self-determination. So when you say that the left has shown itself to be helpless and disoriented, what is it exactly you're referring to? Yeah, um, that's connected to the thing I've said earlier that uh, we see now that uh, in the West especially people are very unfamiliar, unacquainted with the context of the post-Soviet politics. Usually because of the long left tradition and uh, great abundance of different currents, we have historical cliches uh, about this Eastern Europe. Uh, we've seen that a lot of people are thinking that Russia is a, so, I don't know, socialist state in recession or something like that. And they are trying to uh, derive their new policies, new politics, their programming, their statements based on that type of cliches. And of course, it doesn't help them. Usually, it just causes that they are the people who are pursuing the further the Russian propaganda, Putin's propaganda. But there are a lot of different such positions, and uh, I think that uh, we really lack now the subject the 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 new analysis of the events that are going on here that were happening the last 30 years and also the highlight of the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian subjectivity as such, because uh, even uh, people who, even groups that usually support Ukraine and uh, are now in solidarity with us, they are less interested in working with Ukrainians than in working with uh, Russian protesters. So uh, there are some, I, I was in some meetings where when the, the one uh, guy from United Kingdom conducted the meeting where he invited the people from uh, the socialist currents from Ukraine and from Russia. But uh, the joke was that we came, but no one from Russia came because there are not, no uh, major protest uh, movements, so to say. And, uh, I think that this may be caused by some co colonial attitude towards Ukraine. We Everybody knows about Russia, about Russian history and so on, but nobody knows about Ukraine. Everybody knows about Lenin, Trotsky, but nobody knows about Vinichenko and other socialist uh, socialists from Ukraine from the beginning of the 20th century. However, we had our own uh, Ukrainian People's Republic at that time, and all the government was uh, formed by the socialists and the communists, but no one knows that. So uh, we are trying to work uh, with this material to show that there are people on the left in Ukraine, and actually we, uh, to some extent, uh, influence the politics in Ukraine. 
And I think that one of the ways to escape this disorientation among the left is to listen to Ukrainians, to, to the regular people and to Ukrainian uh, leftist currents. I, I couldn't agree with you more. This is one of the things that we have tried to stress. This is why I asked you that first que question. You know, somebody asked me, how do we, how do we support U Ukraine? Well, let's ask the Ukrainians. Uh, but I'm sure you are familiar with Noam Chomsky, and we've had uh, a couple of episodes where we've discussed Noam Chomsky. This is also something that he has a lot of trouble with. Instead of designing how the world should operate from just consulting his own brain, instead of like doing that, he could listen to people and talk to them and work things out in connection with what they say. He has a lot of trouble grasping that, that idea. But, but I agree with you. I don't know how to get through to, to such people that... You, you know, what, what people want matters. It's not only what's coming out of your own head. But let, let me continue with this, this, this statement in your, your resolution about the disorientation of the left. It, it refers to mistakes that the international socialist movement has made. Are you just referring to the continuing failure to support Ukraine? Or there are specific mistakes? And are they really mistakes? Or is this just bad ideology? If, if you know what I mean, in, in other words, a mistake is usually just something isolated. You're meant to do it right, but you didn't do it right. But if someone has like a campus politics where they say the main enemy in the world is the U.S. and NATO, that, that's not a mistake. That's a whole different orientation to, to, to the world, right? Of course, the, the, uh, the influence of some uh, minor groups in in all over the world is not very big for for the real politics that is influencing the Ukrainian government or Russian government or whatever but uh, there are a lot of big parties whose uh, position really so to say matters i mean everybody's position matters but some of them are more influenced and, and uh, some of them less totally the the problem the big problem was uh, in Ukraine with uh, rehabilitation of the uh, left-wing idea, socialist ideas, because in Ukraine we have a big trauma of the uh, Soviet times and people are very skeptical about everything that is linked to the socialism or even to the social democratic ideas. But before the invasion, uh, this trend uh, was changing. Uh, and I think our organization has a part in this changed. You could even uh, go to some protest and say openly that you are a socialist and it's, it was okay. But uh, of course everything changed uh, after the invasion as Putin very interestingly, Putin's uh, army very interestingly uses uh, the far right rhetorics with the far left. The far right symbols like this, uh, these uh, symbols like Russian swastikas with uh, red flags. And uh, of course, uh, people now are again very feared of everything that is linked to the socialism. But uh, where I'm uh, going is I w wanted to say that uh, yesterday we had an elections in Brazil. And of course, Bolsonaro is a horrible politician who openly, blatantly supports Putin. 
but on the other side, we have Lula, who is progressive and everybody supports Lula. But uh, from the standpoint of regular Ukrainians, when they see what Lula said about his attitude towards the events in Ukraine, people always say that, oh, again, another socialist supports Putin and, and so on. And the same we see with Noam Chomsky, the same we see with Balanchon, with uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Their position is very harmful for a rehabilitation of a Ukrainian left-wing organization. And, and we, being one of them, we are influenced by their speeches, statements, very critical of NATO and uh, sometimes in support of Putin. I caught the names, not everybody may have caught the names. One of them is Mélenchon, left-wing French politician. Uh, Maxime mentioned another person he mentioned was Jeremy Corbyn, the ex-leader of the Labour Party in the United Kingdom. Let me let me, let me ask as well, uh, we, we talked about the call for complete victory and security for Ukraine. Uh, your organization is calling for that. Do you think that it is important that other groups on the left internationally echo that call that what we need is complete victory and security for Ukraine? If so, why? As you've said, we have uh, this uh, statement in our uh, resolutions that our aim is the defeat of Russia, Russian imperialism, and the creation of the situation in which Ukraine could be unsafe and Ukrainian people could feel themselves unsafe. Of course, we think that this is a position of the really democratic left, the radical left, because we must understand that the, the whole point is not only in Ukraine. However, the Ukraine matters, the Ukrainian people matters, of course, but uh, even on the larger scope, that is uh, the story about the imperialism and the future of the progressive politics. If we will try to make some concessions with Putin's regime, maybe to try to make a deal with him, for example, this region is yours, this region is ours, and so on, we will make a precedent in which a criminal actions, the, the, the actions that cause a lot of deaths, casualties among the regular people, actually on both sides, of course. If this is the precedent that will take place in future, it will cause for the creation of the, as you've said, of the multipolarity, but not in, in the sense of uh, everybody can develop as, as they want democratically with peoples organizing themselves. No, but uh, the multipolarity in which every imperialist have its own backyard. And when we have uh, the will for Ukrainians to, to have their, to use their right for self-determination, yeah, Putin can think that that's some misunderstanding and uh, I can do whatever I can on my backyard. So this is a story for the creation of this site in the future, if we will have a victory in this fight for the emancipatory politics. Because if Putin is succeeded in it, it will create a precedent for the Turkey to see some countries as their own backyard, for the Israel to have its own backyard, and for the, the same for United States and China or and Japan or whatever. And, and many others. I mean, you know, Iran is an actor in, in the world, Indonesia, and, and so forth. Yeah, so I, I guess what you're saying is the alternative to complete victory is giving Putin a partial victory and that 
giving Putin a partial victory sets a precedent that butchery, imperialist invasion works, it succeeds. And yeah, how can that be acceptable? Of course, and actually we have uh, in history, we have a case when uh, the world was divided by the spheres of influence. Yeah, we had the United States sphere of influence and the Western sphere of influence and the Soviet one. And because of these, the protests in Budapest, yeah, the Russia just went with tank there. But that was the place where the people were trying to self-organize, to create some alternative to the totalitarian regime of the Soviet Union. And because the world was divided and the Hungary was supposed as considered just as an, another country that is under influence of Soviet Union, the uh, protest was brutally suppressed. So no place for emancipation could happen. Right. This is what happens when the world gets divided between superpowers and you're caught in, 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 the, in the middle. The, the Hungarian people did, did, re, did revolt and that, that was a shining example of not giving in. Unfortunately, the, the Hungarian revolution was crushed at that time. But let me, let me ask one more question about the, the resolution issued last month by Sotialny Ruch. It says, let's protect the victory of the people of Ukraine from its privatization by oligarchs. And I found this a notable statement for a couple of reasons. One thing is you're seeming to anticipate the victory of Ukraine uh, against Russia's imperialist invasion. So it's hopeful and optimistic in that way. You're looking ahead to the situation after the war ends. And what you're doing is warning about the post-war situation, Ukraine being privatized once the war ends. Why is that one of your major concerns? What is it that would be privatized? And how would that affect the, the people of Ukraine? We are usually another leftist currents are accused of being a patriotic and do not uh, see the reality of our situation in Ukraine, that we are not critical towards our government. But that is exactly what, what we are trying to say in our resolution that we very often in our social media, in our some statements, we criticize our government because we understand that our government do not represent the interests of the regular Ukrainians, but the clique of oligarchs who are fighting between themselves and trying to grab the bigger piece of pie. So we totally understand this. And uh, one of the key, one of the examples of this was after the Russia invaded, Ukrainian government were decided not to raise taxes for make some progressive taxing for big uh, business. No, they were cutting the labor law and removing some of the labor rights that Ukrainians uh, have. So this caused that a lot of people were uh, sacked out of their workplace. Uh, it increased the Poverty in Ukraine, the, the lack of working places and the places where to get money. And we criticize our government for this. So what did we mean by uh, privatization of the victory? In the case of victory of Ukraine and defeat of Russian imperialism, we seek to create a situation in which all these rights that people lost during their, this war, all these uh, undemocratic decisions of Ukrainian government and the ruling party, uh, the servants of the people, Zelensky's party, to create a place where people will have an ability 
to return them back to gain a new maybe rights, but first of all to return them back and to to have dignity at the workplaces. So this is the aim uh, now of Sozialneruch. And we are working on this. For example, uh, we have uh, a campaign called Trutoborona. It's in Ukrainian. In, in English, it can be translated as a defense of the labor, where we have created a small informational center with a lawyer whom people can contact uh, via telephone or via uh, telegram bot. We've uh, developed our own without any payment to have a consultation with a lawyer to understand is the actions of their employer is uh, legal or not. And maybe to have some, if they will have to to go to court, we can provide them with uh, assistance like the lawyer or any other to pay for them for the for the court. Yeah, so that is the aim of, of our organization. So for in the case of victory, we must uh, create the space where people can create another democratic socialist institutions which will represent the will of the Ukrainians, of the workers, of the some progressive movements like feminists uh, or ecological activists, and to make the influence of the big business in Ukraine less. Right. Okay. So you, you, you're not really uh, focused in that statement on privatization of industries like removing them from government ownership and transferring them to private ownership. What you're really concerned about is workers' rights and the ending of wartime emergency measures once the war ends so that the, the democratic rights of workers get restored. Is that right? Yeah, right. Because uh, when people have an experience of the fight, I mean, our aim is for, after the war for people to have uh, an ability to fight for their own rights. And when people, just regular people, have an experience with fighting on the front line with the invaders, then in the future they will have an ability to fight for their rights, uh, to combat for their rights with the government. And our role here is to organize them. Uh, I really hope that in a future episode, not in the distant future, but in the near future, uh, that you or Vitaly Dudin or, or somebody from your organization uh, come back and, and talk with us and we can explore some of these uh, issues in a little bit more detail. And uh, again, I'm very thank you for this invitation today because, as I've said before, uh, now we see that when the, when the people from abroad, from especially from the Western countries, highlight the events in Ukraine from the left-wing perspectives, but from the left-wing perspectives of the people who are here, uh, it's very important and it have it has really an influence. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies.